You're listening to Freestyle Flavor. I'm your host, Chef Tarsha. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, stay tuned for my conversation with Chef Blue Adams. Joining us live from Provo, Utah, we'll talk about her life experience as a member of the Navajo Nation, her work as the director of Hub, and I'll ask her, what are the current issues surrounding food security on the reservation? You've got freestyle flavor. Put your listening ears on. Stay close. I'll be right back. So I guess essentially I'm a steward. Uh, We're all temporary and we need to be aware of what we leave behind. So, I think that would be the foundation for my philosophy. I think we've lost our connection to the universe and our place, understanding our place in the universe. So it's important to remind, especially the next generation, that we need to work for the betterment of all and not just the individual. You've got Freestyle Flavor, a podcast cookumentary highlighting all things food. Stay posted for my conversations with cooks, educators, farmers, ranchers, and regular folks talking about the flavors we all love. We'll learn so much about where our food is coming from, recipe profiles, ingredients, and fanfare tasty fanfare stay posted our next episode is coming up now welcome chef blue adams to freestyle flavor thank you i'm so happy to be here Fantastic. Tell me, you're joining us from Provo, Utah. What's the weather like there today? It's overcast and cloudy, but that could change within the hour to either 50, 60 degree weather, beautiful clear skies, or sudden snowstorm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, no. I I think all this weather is really very unpredictable lately. We have uh, overcast gray skies here uh, today in Houston. It's raining. I'm always happy to see the rain, however, as an urban farmer and land steward. 
Um, but we definitely don't want a rain, tornado, hurricane, all of those things. And we just can't tell, you know, as we see all of this devastation happening everywhere, uh, what's going to happen. So you said snow. So, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, we are. So we've broken all of the records, historical records we have. And we have about four or five more coming in the next couple of weeks. Wow. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, there are, are some benefits. I, I've seen some uh, of the farmers and producers I work with, their fields are flooded, which creates a lot, of war, a lot more work for them. But the silver lining is, um, oftentimes that brings nutrients and, and uh, minerals that, through the sediment. So, you know, it's more work, but it does improve the soil overall. Yeah, and I guess that's the reason why we have to say that we are stewards of the land because um, we really don't have any control of any of this. We have to learn how to work with it so that it's yep. a win-win for us and the absolutely yeah let me start out with you by asking you about your first food memory wow my first food memory so um my brother had cooked his entire life from the time he was eight years old um and i always admired that about him. I, I loved the food, the dishes he would create in our childhood home. My first food memory was trying to impress him <laughs> by cooking this huge meal. Um, and he loved Chinese food, he loved Italian food, but I, we used to go down to the market. He would take us down to the market to buy wonton skins because they were cheap. Um, and one of our struggle mills was uh, stuffed wontons. So I, I remember being six or seven years old and, and getting another sibling to take me to the market for keeping some wonton skins and stuffing them with whatever we had in the house. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was terrible, but... <laughs> what, what do you still stuff wontons today? I do actually. Um, uh, my kids love uh, making the little um, gyoza. My kids are a huge fan of sushi, so whenever we have sushi night, we'll make gyoza to go with it. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, what is gyoza for people who don't know what that is? So um, the wonton skins are kind of like a really thin dough and you can use them to wrap any kind of ingredient, protein, vegetable, it can be sweet or savory. But gyoza specifically, most often it's pork, ground pork with vegetables. Mm-hmm. So you wrap the skins around them into a little dumpling and you can either steam them or pan fry them. Mm-hmm. And the pan frying is actually a combination of both, where you fry the bottom, then you add a little bit of water to steam, and you cover it. 
so it continues to cook in process. Okay, so both uh, many of us, delicious. yeah, many of us who enjoy those, we call them pot stickers. So it's basically the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and you got a yep. special little sauce you dunk them in. I do. We make our own gyozo sauce. Okay. <laughs> so just uh. Yeah. <laughs> do you and your brother still cook together or have, do you cook together at all today? So uh, my brother was my business partner and my executive chef. And he had helped me with all of our concepts that we've created. To date, we've had six different concepts. But unfortunately, we lost him to COVID at the beginning of 2021. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. So, thank you. I appreciate that. It was it was very difficult for me. Um, it's it's still difficult. Yeah. But um, I had to literally pick up his knife and keep our project moving forward, mm-hmm. and still trying to find my footing in that sense, but. Um, grateful for the support of the James Beard Foundation and all the networks and people that I've met for supporting me, continuing to support me. So yeah, you mentioned the James. Not entirely sure what that looks like, but I guess we'll find out. (laughs) Right. Well, you're 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 working it. That's the most important thing. You mentioned the James Beard Foundation. That's where you and I met uh, at the. Uh, most recent Chef Summit, which was uh, hosted here in Houston, and I was so excited to meet you. Uh, like I didn't know you, you know, before then, but uh, you and I were both in the uh, track of the conser- conservation and sustainability track, and yes. we happened to be sitting at the same table. And I remember the first day that you sat at the table that I was sitting at and right next to me, I didn't see your face, but I could only see your hair. I was so enamored by your hair. And I just was, I was thinking, you know, it was distracting to me because I was thinking, wow, her hair is so black. It is like, (laughs) you know, I love And you know me, I have all this big hair. Right. So when I finally saw your face, and I don't know if you remember me asking this, I, I said, "Are you Native American? Do you remember me asking you that?" <laughs> I do. Because I, <laughs> I thought, as soon as I saw your face, I thought, "Oh, I bet you she's Native American, and she, that's why she's got this great hair." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I remember the conversations there at the table, and. It was so awesome to hear the shift of perspective and the shift in the conversation to community. Yeah. And recognizing that um, supporting the community, whatever community you're in, is so important. And I love talking to you and the others and working to create policies that focus on community right i think you and i were pretty firm in our group uh, our subgroup we kind of took the mic uh so to speak on remembering <laughs> local you know because we were in the room with a lot of big big business big big uh you know big big business uh players 
And, you know, yeah. we did wrangle that horn, if if we can say, to say, no, let's not leave out community. Let's not leave out local. Let's not leave out uh, the community farmer. And uh, so, and I, which made me fall in love with you even more because that's the, that was my thing. And you were just very tenacious and you're, uh, you're actually <laughs> brilliant as well. So, yeah. So that was awesome. <laughs> and I was like, oh, she's my sister in some, some way. I feel it. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, we don't, we, we can't. And I think I shared this story at the table where recognizing that many of us, whether we're urban or rural, we have the same challenges. Yeah. And we only get stronger through connection. Mm-hmm. So we can't say, you know, either or. It has to be both and collectively. Exactly. Exactly. You are a member of the Navajo Nation. Um which is excites me, um, not in a novelty sense, but that in the sense that, and I, I expressed this to you then, which is that I don't feel like we hear enough about indigenous people here of these Americas. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and I think that you, you told me at the time, which kind of stayed with me, um, maybe the characterization there's a conflict of the characterization of American you know and so uh, when I say Navajo nation I say it with the most reverence really and also other tribal nations because I feel like we have to have more of the voice coming forward and so uh, I'm, I'm very excited to, to just have this chat period because some people have never spoken to anyone uh, from any indigenous community and um, you know so what do you what do you have to say about um, the Navajo Nation give me I don't know off the cuff what you have to say but I know that you have spoken nationally about a lot of things that you're passionate about um, that bring rise to uh you know, certain injustices of sovereignties, etc. But I, I really would like to just throw the ball in your court and then let's go from there. Absolutely. So the Navajo Nation is the largest indigenous nation in North America or the United States. Um, we recognize ourselves as part of the indigenous people all the way from south, all the way through South America, um, all the way up through Canada. Mm-hmm. We have a land base of about 17 million acres, I believe. We're the size of West Virginia. Mm, okay. um, we have the, right now, I believe the largest number of enrolled members. And so enrollment is a way for the federal government to recognize tribal nations. Mm 
which is a it's just a strange process to me. I always call it a pedigree. We're on, we're the, <laughs> we're the only demographic in in the United States with a pedigree. So yeah, I have a certificate of Indian blood, mm-hmm. and all, although my mother is is Navajo, my father is Mandan and Harasa. According to the federal government, I'm only half. I can only claim one tribal nation. So I'm one half Native American on paper, and then my children, unless if, if they marry outside of their tribe or they marry uh, a different race, it lessens. So they become one quarter, and on and on until you know they don't recognize less than one eighth. What what uh, 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 there's I can as again, you know there's so many tangents we can break off into. But what um what difference does that make? What what difference does that make? You know what I mean? So for uh, for our relationship with the federal government, it's tied to our how our land is structured. So our most much of our land is held in federal trust. So we have to have that CIB to have what are called grazing rights or housing rights to possess the land within our community. Mm. And even that is, you know, you almost have to have a degree right. mm-hmm. <laughs> in Indian policy to really understand what that means and what the eventual, um, I guess eventually the goal is to disenfranchise indigenous nations from their land right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um that that creates a lot of issues as far as land ownership um the businesses we're able to create and sustain within our communities and again um it's just over a century of political policy that has created an environment where it's very difficult start a business, to own a home, to create to create um, economic opportunity. And then on the other side of that, we have to fight against this narrative that we all, all get money. Okay, exactly. Speaking about how people think that because you are Native American or that Native American people receive a check from the government? Sure. Okay. So that that's one of the biggest fallacies for us and, and uh, narrative we're constantly fighting against because, you know, I still have to pay taxes. I have student loans. <laughs> I still have debt. Okay. Um, and especially for Navajo, although Navajo does have different enterprises and business dealings with the federal government and mining companies, the royalties are so small. If we do happen to get a check, it's for maybe a few pennies. Mm-hmm. So that also hinders, um, especially my work, because the thought is always, oh, why do you need money? Or why aren't, why doesn't your government help? Or et cetera, et cetera. So people need to understand that 
most of our tribal councils were created as business councils or in a sense corporations solely for the purpose to negotiate these uh, natural resource uh, deals. They've never operated for the benefit of the people. They've only operated for the benefit of the shareholders, which were oftentimes the federal government or the mining companies. So what that means is the structures and the bureaucracy that we have to navigate as entrepreneurs, business owners, etc. There are so many levels to it from federal to state to county to tribal to sometimes incorporated cities and then navigating because the land is held in federal trust. It's much of our land is held under use of fructuary rights, which are tied to grazing permits. <laughs> and it's even crazy. at this point, even at this point, it becomes complicated. Right. And it's, it's hard to really understand. So if I'm speaking and I'm telling people, you know, 95% of our land is held under grazing rights, but only 5% of the population hold those rights. And what that means is it, it's a hindrance to development. It's, it's really hard to understand that perspective, having lived and grown up in an America where opportunity is all around you. Yeah. That's not true for many of our communities. Well, tell me, tell me more about the actual reservation then, life on the reservation, because um, I saw a few clips of you. Like I said, you've been on several national media highlights advocating um, a lot of your message of your people and, and, and of tribal people, indigenous people in general. And I was really surprised to see that um, the 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 uh, reservations have a lot of dirt roads. I, I, I is it underdeveloped in that way, or was that just that clip? No, eighty uh, percent of roads in Navajo are dirt. Wow. Um, including uh, leading to my own ancestral home, uh, we have a small a couple of small buildings where we spend much of the summer or if I'm working on Navajo, I'll stay there. But right now it's inaccessible because of the weather. So much flooding, a, a small pond that's rapidly turning into a lake <laughs> just took out our road. That's climate change so at work. That's climate change, yeah. And the monsoons are coming back, which we're grateful for, but we, we're just not prepared and we don't have the infrastructure to really benefit from all the moisture that's coming. Mm -hmm. So yes, 80% of the roads on Navajo are dirt. Um, like I said, we're about the size of West Virginia. Um, where my work comes in, we have 13 grocery stores that serve a community of over 170,000 um, year-round community members. So what that what happens is much of our community relies on processed and shelf stable foods. So uh, gaining access to fresh fresh fruits and vegetables is very difficult. And then you compound that with 
around 30% of our household lacking electricity and plumbing water. I'm sorry. So then you're you're talking about the lack of refrigeration, the lack of, you know, sanitary preparation. So again, canned and prepackaged food is what you you're going to have access to. How, how can this exist at this time that you have an issue of electricity, you have an issue of running water? I I it's hard to even fathom that. So the Navajo Nation at one time was sitting on, I think, 30% of the nation's coal. Um, most, I think it's over 90% of the uranium that was mined for the First World War was from Navajo. So it always comes down to the natural resources that are under our feet. Oh. The policy has been constructed since, you know, this. these conversations are so lengthy because you have to start in 1864. Yeah. So in, in 1864, the scorched earth policy was a policy where Kit Carson and his um, army destroyed our traditional food systems. Um, they, that happened for about four years. We were fighting with the federal government um, some of the conditions of our surrender was moving us to Bosque Redondo, New Mexico, which was a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. And the Navajo people were held there for four years before they negotiated the Treaty of 1868, which was never upheld. In the history of the United States, there has never been a single treaty that has been upheld. Not one. To this day incredible so when we were allowed to return back to our homelands um, we were given commodities so we could return but we still didn't have access to food and that was the beginning of what i call food apartheid yeah because the situation that exists is the result of direct political action mm-hmm. not necessarily climate change but climate change is coming in a quick second So um, after we were allowed to return home and during the early 1900s, they found that we had a vast amount of natural resources. So they created the Navajo Business Council. And then the the mining consortium was created and and they negotiated uh, oil and mineral rights. And oftentimes these leases would pay out, you know, I know there's a coal lease that paid out 15 cents per metric ton of coal that was extracted. 15 cents? 15 cents. Oh my God. So you have this long history of politicians uh, um, circumventing EPA or getting lobbying for EPA to change laws to mine and develop in our, on our reservation benefiting from that you know once they got those policies in place they quit their jobs as politicians and oftentimes became ceos of the companies peabody being one of those companies Mm. so peabody coal mine has been in our community for around 55 years 
they extracted um, with the coal, the way that they transported their coal was they would extract water. And over the course of the 55 years, they extracted 45 billion gallons of pristine water, wow. mixed it with coal, and they would call it a slurry and sent it to Nevada. Wow. And that's just one instance. I mean, there are yeah. multiple instances. And what we're left with is the community becomes dependent on these outdated and obsolete technologies. Mm-hmm. But then they they want the, the tribe to purchase those biz- businesses that are failing. They so, do. You, and one you, of the- you know, let me, let me, because I can see this is a huge history lesson. Huge. My God. Yes. Um, <laughs> So, uh, because my mind is just thinking like, you know, here we are, we can go all over the world, getting other people's business, trying to rescue other people. And right here in our nation, we have people who are people. It's not, it's not like Navajo nation or whatever. We have people in our own country who are without water and electricity in 2023. And um, this is the yes. same thing. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I, I uh, it's hard for me to even. And one, I, the, want... one, I know that. Well, you know, this is a product of our education system. Even yeah. me in school, like, just astounded at how they were represented, as, always in historical context. So mm-hmm. we've always been represented in that historical context either through the education system or media mm-hmm. and even now you know that I, I mean tiktok has been probably one of the most helpful tools in a way because now we have a voice right instagram yeah. social media things like this mm-hmm. give mm-hmm. Uh, indigenous content creators a voice but we're still <clears throat> having to educate people because in school you're told you know the the colonizers came and they had this beautiful thanksgiving celebration and they were you know they were they were embraced by the indigenous people and you know all of these this crazy story that it that's not that wasn't the truth and we recognize that because we have our oral histories that reach back millennia we have our creation stories our migration stories our stories of different things that have happened with the earth mm-hmm. but then we're you know we're we're fed this this weird information in school and many of us have lost our connection to our original stories <clears throat> but that doesn't that doesn't help that we're portrayed in historical context so then you know I was with a, a group of women called Native Women Entrepreneurs of Arizona they had the opportunity to Mongolia and the Mongolian women there were 100% certain we didn't anymore. They were extinct. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, not, we don't got to go to Mongolia. We can be right here <laughs> in these United States and say, and that's the reason why I said it's, it's not, a, nav, not a, a, a novelty to want to be, be intrigued by Navajo, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, we don't see anything, we don't hear anything, we don't know, you know. So yes, this could be like, oh, they really do exist. You know what I mean? Right. And that's a tragedy. And the flip side of that is 
we we are in the news or that we are portrayed portrayed in such a negative light it's always the poverty or the alcoholism or obesity or diabetes etc so i'm careful also how i portray people because we can look at our situation as either a hindrance or we can look at it as an opportunity because maybe we don't want to replicate the city's infrastructure that is crumbling all around us. Maybe we can look at this as an opportunity to leapfrog over that and go into green and sustainable. And maybe, you know, we don't need all of this. We don't need uh, coal generated um, power. We can look into cleaner technologies or we can, you know, how do we look at this as a positive? And I think that's why I started in DigiHub. Let's talk about DigiHub. So Indigihub started, and I think this is really appropriate because right now I'm, I'm at a co-working space called Kiln. And Kiln was where I had my little office uh, way back when I had my restaurants. And I was working in this beautiful room with a you know leather massage chair, dim the lights, scented candle, the whole nine yards. And I just got done with my work, I was taking a little break, hopped onto Facebook, and one of the first posts I came across was from a childhood friend who was an entrepreneur on Navajo. And he was um, complaining about he needed to send in an application for something, but he lives, his home doesn't have access to electricity, so he has to go into town, try to use the public facilities <clears throat> to get on a computer, send an email, and he, the library's computers were, so he went to the museum, and there were that couldn't use their equipment, an employee. So he had to continue, he already driven 20 miles into town, now he had to drive another 25 into the nearest metropolitan town which is Gallup New Mexico and go to the Kinkos there paid $15 to access the computer and so for him this whole process took like three days where I'm sitting in such privilege and opportunity it it literally broke my heart and I I wanted to really understand why why is this still because I grew up there that's that's my family that my family still lives there you know, my, my great, 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 great grandmother's land and my great, great grandmother's Hogan, where I grew up, is still there. So it started this journey and I thought, you know, co-working was such a beautiful concept and it aligns with indigenous values of sharing resources and building community why can't this work on Navajo? And it, it, it started that journey. So we did our first pilot space in 2016, 17. 
there on the Navajo Nation. Um, and that was where my real education began. <laughs> yes. Because, you know, I, I wanted to kind of shoehorn in this concept of, of business that I had within a, within a system that does not, cannot support it. So I had to relearn, I had to unlearn what I learned in business school and I had to relearn um, concepts around community and what we call keh, which is balance and harmony mm-hmm. and how I can, how we can exist within this social construct that has been created with our values intact. And so, so- I... I Go ahead, Terry. No, I was going to say, so tell us exactly what Indigihub is. So what Indigihub has evolved into is our mission is creating hubs of opportunity for Indigenous-led solutions. Mm-hmm. And I want it to be very broad because what I've come to find is we will have more impact and more movement if we support mutual aid and grassroots efforts. So when we were creating the mission statement, we wanted to be broad enough to be able to say, okay, you're you're not necessarily a 501c3, but you're doing something for the community. Let's get you some funding. Right. Let's empower you because you, that's who we should be empowering. A lot of the NGOs that exist in indigenous communities are just as extractive as corporations. Right. So we don't want to continue that model of nonprofit work. We literally just want to be the mechanism that can get the funding, can qualify for it under the federal structure, and get it into the hands of people that are doing the work and who are in the community and they need support. So that's Mm -hmm. what Indigihub does. So bravo to you because that is the real issue uh, fighting this fight of nonprofit. You know, people think, oh, nonprofit um, is the savior of the community. But just like you said, everything has turned to big business. And at the end of the day, it's where are the people, you know, and yep. how, uh, where's the advocacy? And, you know, this is the things that you and I, you know, were championing uh, during our time together. Um, so, yeah, that's super important because they're leaving the people out, even of the nonprofit world. Yeah, most most of their most of the organizations operate at a seventy to ninety percent admin cost. Right. And then the CEOs or the directors are getting paid in the millions. Mm-hmm. And all of this information is publicly available. It it has to be. If you're a five oh one C three, your financials should be public. Mm-hmm. So it, and it doesn't take a lot of digging. And one of the issues too is um, we come across groups that, so one example is I was working with um, a tribal leader and they received a check for around $4,000 and they're like, 
what is this for? And they're, oh, we raised raised this for a project, blah, blah, blah. Come to find out, they had raised hundreds of thousands. Wow. And, of course, you know, paid themselves, paid the contractors, everybody else got paid. And then this poor little community got a little check for something they didn't even know they were involved in. Exactly. Wow. It's crazy. Is this effort with Hub? is this a um maybe involving more than one tribe is it is it just a navajo because it seems like to me that you're trying to level the playing field for not just the navajo but maybe uniting tribes yes um so we are that's absolutely what we're trying to do so right now our three main focuses are on food Uh, entrepreneurship and just uh, advocacy so the three three things we've created three little hubs we have the co-work hub which provides basic business services you know access to Wi-Fi access to wireless printer um, as basic as paper clips staples you know envelopes so entrepreneurs can go to our little hub if they're doing work, the thing is for anything that happens on Navajo, you have to go to Window Rock, which is the capital. That's where all the tribal businesses or tribal administrative offices are. If you're doing anything with the tribe, if you're starting a business, filling out a home site lease, filling out a business site lease, anything like that, you have to go to the capital and do business there. But what happens is if you came from Western border, which is two and a half, three hours away, and they tell you, oh, you filled this out incorrectly. You know, you have to go back home and refill it out. It, it becomes a, a strenuous process. Right. So we just wanted to create a quick stop gap. Come here. Come to the co-work hub. Um, we can print it, reprint it for you. We can help you fill it out correctly. We can provide some support in these ways. You know what I mean? We just wanted to fill that yeah. gap quickly. So it's it's a social working hub as well, um, obviously. Yep. And for community organization, whatever you need to use it for, you're welcome to use it. Um, I, I also, gosh, there's just so much, so many questions <laughs> I have. But, you know, so it sounds like to me, are you saying that you all do not own your homes on the reservation, the land? So technically, no, we cannot uh. have a mortgage. It is not, it does not become an asset which is one of the building blocks to entrepreneurship in America. Mm. So we have to be really creative about the solutions we create for entrepreneurs. And not just Navajo, not just indigenous, but women and people of color. Right. Who don't have traditional avenues of access to capital. We just don't, you know what I mean? So. We want to be. We want to create a model for shared sharing resources, mm-hmm. sharing risk, and then provide uh, opportunities to get funding for these projects. Yeah, yeah. So economic the, the, strength. Yeah. Yes, and mm-hmm. to speak to that, uh, one of our one of our projects is the food hub.
for many indigenous communities, uh, food is economy. That is economy. If you look at the original definition of wealth and economy, it's it's literally, you know, your food, water, shelter. It's consumerism that has now taken, you know, the, the focal point of economics. So we want to create, we think helping create and relocalize our food system will help build our economic base. So we are actively fundraising right now for a food hub, which will set on a farm on Navajo, Dragonfly Farm. And again, we're going to open source all of this. So the plans, the construction, the equipment, um, all of this will be open sourced. So other communities can take those plans and budget. Either we can help fundraise or they can fundraise whatever they want to do and build these in their communities. And what it will do is provide infrastructure and support for these farmers and producers to get their products to market not just locally but also globally so connecting with the hub you know we can build a website if you're um, producing a product we can get it marketed and in a in a global market space we can get um, their goods and services too directly to communities and schools on a local level. Does that mean that you are uh, in, you are wanting to uh, import in, if you will, uh, uh, products uh, from outside of the tribal community to benefit well, the community, or is this well, just a yeah, just just what you're a sustainable effort? only within the community so it'll always be a mixture of both but the issue now is over 90 percent is imported right and it's not good food right and we do have a pretty large um group of producers so with the usufructuary rights and the grazing rights you need to have a certain amount of head of sheep so Mm -hmm. mutton is one of the main protein sources for more of the traditional uh, community members. Okay. They raise sheep. They're literally uh, grass-fed, open-range sheep. They take those to market. And those go to, you know, some chefs or different different more um, markets. High-end. Yeah, High-end sure. markets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we import just garbage. Yeah. Wow. Either that money is spent at Pizza Hut or Taco Bell. You know what I mean? So we're we're trying to create, even if we can't become completely self-sustained, we can introduce this, you know, and it impacts, the impacts are not just economic, but also health. Yeah, we can sure. reduce our, you know, our instances of diabetes. We can address these different health issues we have in our communities. It just makes sense. Talk about um, the sustainability 
of the land because if you have this land, uh, as you reference the size of West Virginia, uh, I, I'm, I imagine obviously since we're lacking water, that means that we don't have good farmland. Is that correct? Um, so we, one of our other, um, one of the other things we do is providing education around regenerating soil. Mm-hmm. So we do actively work with farmers that have, you know, one's a soil scientist. I just connected with another soil scientist who is going, we're going to do a train the trainer class to teach the producers how to test their soil and then how to build it up so it, it can provide more nutrient dense food. Sure. And, and this is a process, but yes, much of our soil has been degraded. Um, we have a problem with the desertification of our soil. We have right. um, um, non-indigenous trees and plants. Um, there's a certain weed that just sucks water. So we're addressing all of those things, but a lot of that comes with education and that's what we want to tie to the food hubs as well. Do you have a need for um, tools and equipment? Um, Do you have seeds? I imagine you all have, because I think about the sovereignty um, that I assume comes with uh, the reservation. And in, in my mind, I'm thinking that that means that you have uh, perhaps heirloom seeds and you have your own uh, technique of farming. Speak to that. Yes. So um, a lot of the, the buzzwords you hear now, like permaculture, companion farming, regenerative right. farming, those are all indigenous uh, techniques. Sure. So we do have farmers that still hold and we have community members that still hold that knowledge and have been teaching. But a lot of this work, again, it's happening at the grassroots level and it's happening at the mutual aid level because we we do have to, unfortunately, circumvent a lot of the bureaucracy that exists. Mm-hmm. So. I'm careful about, I'm always broad in my terms, you know, we're, we're yeah. helping food producers and farmers, but I, I rarely name names or right. give locales because it, 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 it literally is guerrilla work. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I branded um, myself as a guerrilla economist because we have to redefine how we see economy, how we build economy. And yeah. the definitions surrounding economy and business models. So I have to be careful with what I say, but yes, we do. We do have farmers that hold great amounts of knowledge yeah. in regards to regenerating the soil, uh, cover cropping, companion farming, what works best, how mm-hmm. to build uh, culverts to retain water. Mm-hmm. All of these things, yes we're working with uh, people but you know they they want to be below the radar okay and perhaps you don't want to talk too much about um, you know seed banking I don't know it just seems so strange to have this somewhat covert conversation about <laughs> right you know I mean my god it's just no, incredible for sure. 
<laughs> yeah, it's incredible, you know? Well, I, if we look, I, if, if we look back historically, food has always been weaponized, especially yeah. against people of color. Right. It hasn't changed much. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I was I, I think that perhaps maybe the biggest um, instrument of redlining, you know, that we're I fight against here in the urban environment, inner city. Uh, but the, the, the largest example of redlining would have to be the reservations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's um, it's just blowing my mind. And I imagine as people contemplate this conversation, listening to it, we're planting seeds to hopefully let folks know that uh, it's, it's not, this is not just about one person's existence, one neighborhood's existence. It's uh, something that we all have to think about when we talk about sustainability, when we talk about water, when we talk about electricity, when we think about raising young people who are um, uh, just consumed by technology, and then we have communities that don't even have technology that can say, hey, we are having a meeting, you know, over here and we're giving away something or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. It's, um, it's mind boggling to uh, consider and, and exactly things. because you know you hear about these movements like land back etc but people don't understand that just means a return to stewardship not mm-hmm. technically owning or trying to claim ownership over the land just trying to restore our relationship as stewards and right. how that benefits all so it's not indigenous versus, it's let us use our knowledge and reaffirm our relationship for the benefit of all. Let's talk about your love for food, your love for your culture. It's evident just in your um, you're you're so knowledgeable. Like I said, this is just scratching the surface. Uh, I, I I told you when I met you, I'm ready to go and you know go to the powwow. <laughs> I'm ready to get you know totally immersed because um, I just uh, I feel the spirit uh, in you, and I and I know that spirit. I have that same warrior spirit as well. But let's talk about the love of food and culture. What what would you say uh, is the Navajo flavor profile? You know, in terms of spices and produce. For sure. So, um, what we call the three sisters, of course, uh, corn, beans, squash, is pretty much the basis for our diet. Um, it's hard to, it's hard. We've lost so much of our, um, traditional food systems, which were so many plant, plant medicines. You will find pockets. Um, we have elders that still sell plant medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping that we can sustain that in some way, but, uh, you know, we're losing a lot of the use 
through access to these processed and packaged and uh, fast foods. Right. But um, I would say the foundation are the three sisters. Um, And because, you know, we're not a static culture, we have a lot of influence, especially down through Mexico and South America. So um, we have some land base in New Mexico, which is famous for their chili. Yeah. Chilies. Um, We have a lot of Pueblo influence and the Pueblo, um, they do a stew that is very similar to pozole we call it pozole Uh and um, that's one of my favorite dishes is pozole which is uh, a hominy and red chili broth you can add pork you could add squash you could add whatever you want but it's a very beautiful uh, nutritious stew then you have you know in modern context um because of the concentration camp and the commodities we were introduced to wheat flour salt and lard fry bread came from that and i always bread. have interesting i always have interesting conversations around fry bread because i don't believe in food shaming especially yeah, okay. food shaming in a community that doesn't have access right or you know the economic means to purchase fresh fruits and vegetables right on on any kind of consistent basis mm-hmm. so i i don't i don't um demonize fry bread because for me it's actually healthier to create what we call a navajo taco what everybody else calls it an indian taco <laughs> yeah yeah by yeah. making their dough from scratch right making their beans from scratch Mm-hmm. And then adding, um, you know, lettuce or green and a little bit of cheese. I think yeah. that's a thousand times healthier than the Pizza Hut down the street. Mm-hmm. Or the spaghetti sauce that has 30 different ingredients you can barely pronounce. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, and they don't I do. eat it all the time. It's, it's a special, it's a, it's a, um, you eat it during a special event, at a powwow, at a gathering, etc. I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's like moderation. a fair type. Yeah, it's like it's like yeah. going to the state fair, etc. But I, I'm interested to know why it's demonized. What's the demonized part? Just that it's fried um, uh, taco, fried. Uh, it's like a flatbread that puffs into, you know, maybe like a. I, I would think, uh, what is it similar to, like a tostada or something, or. Um, it's similar. I always I compare it to a beignet, but it doesn't have yeast. Okay, right. And right, so it's many, flat. many, many cultures have a form of fried dough. Exactly. I just did an event with uh, an Afghani woman who made a, her version of fry bread. It's very savory. It was delicious, and we got to share, you know, our similar recipes, etc. Mm-hmm. Um. Navajo fry bread is pretty distinct. The further north you go and then up into Canada, they call it Bannock. It gets a little more dense and heavier and then the the ingredients vary. But Navajo fry bread is pretty distinct. Mm -hmm. Um, Gets very fluffy depending on 
favorite ways can be sweet or savory. Yeah. Um, and it's a staple at celebrations. And again, it's that moderation, right? Right. But the demonization comes from being deep fried and being white flour. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Versus being what? Blue corn flour or? Yes. So we do work a lot with blue corn, which is more nutritious, it's gluten-free. And the argument is often, you know, uh, wheat flour, especially bleached wheat flour, is relatively new to our diet, as well as dairy. Right. I was going to ask you about dairy as well. A lot of Navajos are lactose intolerant. Okay. myself. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because um, that, you know, you mentioned the three sisters and then I thought, well, what about, what are you doing for dairy? Is it plant milks or goat milk or what, what kind of, what are you doing in that way? So the argument for dairy is um, that it provides calcium, but we get, would get our calcium traditionally through uh, juniper ash. Mm. So um, oftentimes if you're served blue corn meal or blue corn mush in a traditional way, it contains juniper ash. Juniper ash. So does that mean you're burning the tree itself like a potash? Yep. Okay. And just kind of adding that as like a seasoning or accoutrement, a little dash? Yep. Okay. Okay. See, the chef and me figures it out real quick. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You know, go ahead. Oh, but there's there's many sources of calcium um, Mm -hmm. that are better than milk. But I've always been interested because, you know, I've loved different types of cuisines. I've always wanted to experiment. And I think that's when I started my restaurants and when I worked with chefs, that's what we did. We took these familiar dishes and we used French technique or Uh Italian, uh, you know, some Italian influence or Asian or whatever, and just had fun with it. Because again, our cultures aren't static. Right. And neither are diets. Our diets evolve, They, they just do. And, you know, you can't, you just can't shame people that have little to no access. Yeah. Well, you know, I am freestyle flavor because I'm all about fusion, you know, I mean, and just an innate creativity. I really draw my um, innovation from the food, the ingredient itself. I often tell people who ask me, and have asked me over the years, you know, what's your favorite, whatever, uh, which is, you know, my favorite thing are the ingredients which speak to me and then evolve into whatever the dish is going to be. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fine. It's fun. Um, the interesting thing about uh, indigenous agriculture is the indigenous people of the Americas is responsible for about two-thirds or 70% of all agriculture around the world and have influenced almost every cuisine. That's but amazing. 
it's mm-hmm. you it's not recognized and mm-hmm. that was one of the and I always appreciated the way chef wanted to work because we never wanted to be tokenized we yeah. never wanted a participation award and we were very careful about the project mm-hmm. that you know we got offered a lot of crazy projects but if they didn't fit they didn't fit like um, bizarre foods reached out one time and we're I turned them down and I remember having the conversation with chef like you turned it down that's a national like yeah but our food's not bizarre <laughs> right right so you know being very careful and making sure the awards we won were on based on the merit of our talent and our skills mm-hmm. and um, we always operated that way so he would always say you know we we are chefs that happen to be indigenous that's right. That's exactly right. You know, I have a question about the difference between, and I think you kind of uh, talked about it in terms of uh, different ingredients, where they come from, but the difference between Southwestern food and Native American food, because I think that oftentimes we think of them in our ignorance that they're the same. Are they? Right. Yeah. Okay. They're somewhere in the middle. Okay. So they're heavily influenced in that region by different cultures that came through and Mm -hmm. just the sharing, um, the sharing of foods. Mm -hmm. So they're they're heavily based in indigenous ingredients, but they have influence from all cultures that happen to pack food and share, you know, and and that's really important to recognize is that knowledge sharing. Mm-hmm. And so when, when I do talk about my food and the food dishes I'm creating, I try to use the, the term Southwest, which is which encompasses not just the land and the growers, but the cultures that have passed through over the last millennia. Yeah, um, right. Are there um, any stand out ingredients um that you favor in your own cooking oh my gosh i i love blue corn and i love green chili Mm -hmm. specifically the poblano pepper okay um and it was funny the other day um i i have all of chef's recipes i'm building my own profile and my husband always says, this tastes like you and chef. <laughs> it's like, well, I have to, because, you know, he was my mentor. Yeah. Um, but I just created this um, um, green chili foam. So oh. I, I took a poblano, I, I roasted it, deseeded it, um, blended it down, added a little bit of, I think I used sorum or, did I use sorum? Yeah. Um, made it into a really frothy, beautiful foam. And I thought, what, you know, what I was looking at, I was, I was, had just saw this um, chef that was bringing back um, deviled eggs. <laughs> okay. And yeah. I was like, what if I do it? Like a Southwestern deviled egg. And that actually evolved into a version of um, huevos rancheros as a double egg. 
Yeah. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> and that was that's fun. It, it was a right. a boil, soft boiled egg. Um, soaked out, mixed it with um, um, my other favorite red chili. It's New Mexico red chili. Okay. Um, some New Mexico red chili, some red onion, just for that bite and a little bit of that vinegar. Um, Love red onion. Yeah. Formed it back into what looks like a little um, yolk. Mm-hmm. Um, bathed the shell, the egg, the white, egg white in a yeah. chipotle bath. Just okay. to give it a little bit of that smoky chipotle flavor. Put the yolk back in, garnished it with the green chili foam and some blue corn chips. Oh, crushed on the top. Crushed on the top. Oh, that's great. It's like huevos rancheros, (laughs) (laughs) which was great. It was like my favorite dish is huevos rancheros. When done well, it has to be done very well. Yeah. Well, the only problem about deviled eggs, and I I do a good deviled egg, is there are never enough of them. Yep. (laughs) Everybody says. (laughs) Tell me how people can get in contact with you. If they want to find out more about Indigihub, they want to donate, um, you know, how can they, how can they hook up with you? For sure. So right now we have um, our website at indigihub.com. And spell that for us. I-N-D-I-G-E-H-U-B. Okay. And we're on Instagram as Indigihub and Facebook as well. Okay. And you can reach me at blue at indigihub.com. Blue, and that's the other thing I wanted to ask about your name, which is I find interesting. Where, where does your name come from? Oh boy, the short version. <laughs> <laughs> the short version is we have several names over our lifetime, mm-hmm. um, and I'm speaking, I'm speaking for my um, Mandan Herata side. So I, if I. If I receive a name, I do it in ceremony, which mm-hmm. is a very private event. <clears throat> so I, I actually have several names. Okay. Um, and then it's funny because we'll often joke about, well, what's your government name? Right. And some of us keep our government name or some of us don't. Uh-huh. It's really up, up to the individual. Wow. This is a whole nother show. <laughs> <laughs> But blue was given to me when I was 16. Okay. And it just kind of stuck. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's an awesome my, name. Thank you. I And the the whole, the, the way I received it and the events surrounding it were very pivotal to me. And I they, they kind of built the foundation for me. So I it ended up becoming my government name too. Yeah, it's awesome. But I do, I do carry other names if I'm in ceremony or if I'm with family or, you know, depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm going to hunt you down so I can get me a name too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get a name too, honey. 
okay, <laughs> let me give you my scenario. Um, you are on, and I don't know how uh, I feel about this scenario now talking with you, but anyway, uh, you're on a desert island or deserted and perhaps desert, I don't know, uh, island. You have one kitchen crate. What's in Ooh. your crate? What's in my crate? Is this food or equipment? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. Shoot. Let's see. What's in my crate? What would I make? What would I miss? It would have to be bluebird flower. Bluebird flower is a, a staple in Navajo households uh, in modern times. Um, my blue corn, of course. My poblano peppers. Probably some pork. And some chipotle and some mayo because I can't live without, oh, and some hominy. I can't live without um, pork chop sandwiches <laughs> or pozole. <laughs> okay. How are you going to cook it? How are you going to put it all together? Fire. <laughs> over fire. I can cook all of that over fire. Okay. And can you build your own fire with no uh, oh, I need matches. <laughs> I mean, I could figure it out. <laughs> Probably get a stick and like. Yeah, look, go ahead and do it. <laughs> twirl it between my hands. <laughs> yeah, and some matches. And some matches. Okay, awesome. What is your one word? Community. And why? Because we don't, we don't exist without them in any capacity. I love it. I'm behind it the whole way. Like I said, you are my blue sister. <laughs> and it's it just was really my um, pleasure to meet you. I when I'm I have been thinking of you ever since I met you. You have a very strong presence and um, just on how you are carrying out this legacy of your people and also i mean here we are we're rounding out the end of women's history month if we have to have some kind of observation of that and i i really feel like you are doing a great job to represent women um you i don't know if you're proud of yourself i'm proud of you i'm proud to have met you uh and it pushes me forward to see women like you who are super competent, first of all, uh, and who are problem solving. One of my missions with Ecotone uh, is about tangible solutions as part of our mission. And I really felt such an kinship with what you're doing and I have mad respect for you. I appreciate it. And that, few, that feeling is so mutual. 
Um, I appreciate your time and the energy you give to these really important topics and projects. And I hope we can continue working together and building a better a better world. Yes, absolutely. And we have to seed swamp. I haven't forgotten that. Yep. <laughs> I, I might have mine to- ready. Okay, so do I. We'll we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Freestyle Flavor, a bi-weekly production. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you're alerted to every new uploaded episode. And if you'd like to get in contact with us here at the podcast, we'd love to hear back from you. Send your email to freshandfreestyleflavor at gmail.com. That's going to do it for this episode. In the meantime and in between time, I am Chef Tarsha. It's been a pleasure.